The Morrison government's continuing scandals, a $90 million royal commission exposes our broken privatised aged care system. The good news is Nazis are going on the terrorist watch list and we can achieve carbon neutrality for a dollar a day. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me live from Wagga... (laughs) Is the phenomenal phenomenon that is Van Batham. Van, how are you? Well, hello, Ben, my beloved and much missed partner. Greetings from Wagga. And can I also just give a shout out to Nathan, who's helping us today with the technical side of things. It's the first time we've had a tech, Nathan, and I really appreciate your assistance uh, today as, yeah, we're now in two different locations, not recording from our shed and it wouldn't be possible without you. So thanks very much, Nathan. He is the best. I'm thinking of sneaking him home in my suitcase, <laughs> but that might get me into trouble with the, the new border patrols. Have you heard that uh, Labor in Western Australia are promising uh, stricter border conditions even after coronavirus is over? And I have a feeling that may be the policy that wins them the election, Ben. I have a feeling that the Liberals will be lucky to win a single seat at this rate. Uh, it is pretty interesting what's going on in Western Australia. For those of you who haven't been keeping up with our friends in the West, what was the preferred Premier poll that came in for McGowan? Oh, I think he's almost at 90%, which is, you know, he's, he's almost to the point where it's within the margin of error whether or not everybody loves him or there's one holdout. It's it's hard to Hard to tell. I talked about that on the uh, weekend wrap as well. So, we, you know, it's it's going to uh, come up again probably next week. Um, he is just creaming Kirkup, who's the Liberal over there. He basically conceded uh, at the end of last week. Yes. It, apparently it's a tactic. It's a Liberal Party. Hail Mary is the please feel sorry for us because we're going to get kicked around the court vote that he's going for. So interesting times ahead. (laughs) That's who everybody wants as their leader, isn't it? It's the, uh, look, we know we're losers, but vote for us anyway. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I want to dive straight into what's happening today, uh, though, because I think, you know, the Morrison government scandals are really starting to to bite home and uh, people will be aware, no doubt, um, of allegations that started to come to light um, towards the end of last week about uh, a minister in the Morrison government. Uh, those allegations were given some airtime earlier uh, this week when Morrison uh, told the press that he had confronted, um, or not confronted really, but had spoken to the minister at the centre of that allegation, who had denied the allegation. Um, then today, uh, it was it was sort of leaked, I guess, late last night in the media or put out to the media late last night that there'd be a press conference today that the minister involved or the minister at the centre of that allegation would be the person to give that press conference. That press conference did happen today at three o'clock Eastern Seaboard time. Um, uh, And it was Christian Porter who gave, who stood up from Perth, uh, live from Perth to give the press conference he categorically uh, denies uh, that anything happened. To quote, it did not happen. They were his exact words. Uh, he did uh, refer at the start of his press conference to the family uh, and to, of, the, of the woman who, made, uh, who has made the allegations. Uh, she has uh, 
prematurely passed away uh, and he did express his sympathy to the family around that. Uh, he, was, he did stand and take questions, I have to say, uh, for some time. Uh, he had some fairly vivid memories of the week in question, um, including that the, uh, the person who was making the allegation uh, ironed a shirt for him. Um, he said that he may or may not have uh, said that she would one day make a good wife, uh, which is something that uh, her friends... Uh, have on the public record of saying he did say he said he couldn't recall really whether he had or hadn't said that uh, he had some vivid memories about prawns uh, he was asked specifically if he'd had sex with anyone on that week in question um, which was a debating week by the by the sounds of the descriptions a, a debating contest week uh, he said he did not uh, that he was 17 at the time in question uh, and that he would be taking uh, a couple of, quote, short weeks leave uh, to deal with his uh, own uh, sort of health and, and state of mind. It, it really was a confronting thing to watch. Um, he's been described by one uh, ABC uh, political reporter as appearing as though he was a broken man. Uh, he does categorically deny uh, that it ever happened. Uh, he was asked in the press conference whether he denies that uh, there was rape or whether he denies that there was um, sex of any kind. And he, and he said quite, quite clearly, uh, it simply did not happen. Uh, so, you know, he's been quite categorical about that. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now. This, of course, is happening in the context of a whole series of uh, real damaging uh, allegations uh, against the Morrison government, either directly against a minister, as, as this is, uh, or against staff in the Morrison government, and then the handling of those staff by ministers. Uh, already the defence minister is on leave at the moment. Uh, now Christian Porter uh, will be going on leave. Uh, Michaelia Cash is going to be filling in as Attorney General. Look, it, we should note the New South Wales Police uh, have said that there's not enough admissible evidence. That's the, the precise quote is not enough admissible evidence to pursue an investigation and that they consider the matter to be closed. The AFP has said that it's not a matter for them in their jurisdiction, which of course it's not. Um, you know, allegations of crimes of that nature are the subject of state law, not federal law. Uh, Barnaby Joyce has suggested that there could be some kind of uh, inquiry, although he didn't go into detail about that in the Morrison government has appeared to shut that down relatively quickly. Uh, and of course, there was quite a explosion yesterday uh, when Malcolm Turnbull uh, went on the radio uh, calling for an inquest uh, and suggesting, uh, making suggestions about the uh, passing of the, the woman who has made the allegations uh, and that the coronial, there should be a coronial inquest uh, and uh, an investigation into how that occurred. I understand that the South Australian coroner is looking at 
the passing of the of the woman at the centre of the allegation, um, which is not uncommon uh, in the case where someone has passed away prematurely. That's a perfectly normal standard thing for a state coroner to do. So, yeah, from here, uh, it's going to be a really um, difficult time for a lot of people. And uh, there's a lot of things online, Van, as, as you'll be aware, uh, where people are angry, upset. It's opening a lot of scars for people. Uh, and I think uh, it, it also juxtaposes against, of course, the uh, National Press Club speech, which happened before Christian Porter's press conference um, by Grace Tame, who, of course, is a survivor of, uh, of sexual assault. Um, so there is a juxtaposition there, isn't there? Yeah, the timing is very unfortunate. And the idea that the Australian of the Year, who became Australian of the Year because she had led a campaign in Tasmania uh, after the con the conviction um, of the, the perpetrator uh, who had abused her, she led a campaign to be able to name him publicly and to reform Tasmania's disclosure laws so she would be able to do that. It was called the Let Her Speak campaign and mm. was backed in by journalist Nina Fennell, um, who is an incredible writer and researcher about issues to do with sexual violence in Australia. And um, it was a really life-changing campaign, I think, for a lot of people. And she was honoured for that work with the um, Australian of the Year and, of course, has been representing these issues and speaking about them and this situation in Canberra has swelled up around you know this this issue and um she gave remarks today that I think were very insightful and very moving for a lot of people because it's true that even discussion of this stuff speaks to a really you know, wounds that open very easily for an enormous number of people. And the stuff that you're seeing online that is quite emotional and there is a lot of emotional reaction to these issues being discussed because we've now been discussing um, issues of sexual violence and appropriate procedure and complaints and allegations for the past few weeks well, I there think are. this is our fifth uh, discussion of it on, on this show. For, for five, five shows now we've talked about it. There so are two million reported survivors of sexual violence in Australia. That's reported. They're the official statistics. That is an enormous number of people who in very different ways process their experience. And when we speak about the issue of sexual violence, uh, we have to keep it in the, it's important that we keep it in the, um, in the realm of respect and dignity and um, acknowledgement that everybody processes that kind of experience in their own way and responses can be diverse and unpredictable. And whatever the, Whatever's going on within the Morrison government around um, allegations that have been made, there's been some really clumsy handling by the Prime Minister uh, previous to today about um, allegations around the Brittany Higgins complaint. 
And I think it's been really hard for a lot of people. And I just want to reach out to everyone who might be struggling with this as an ongoing topic of political conversation and thank Anna Spago-Ryan, who is a, a writer and a Twitter person who did nothing today apart from publish pictures of puppies. And I think that's what actually a lot of people really needed to see. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm sorry that um, Germanicus can't be there with you in Wagga um, because I can, I can hear how shaken you are and just know that I love you, the dog loves you, and uh, we'll be here for you when you come home. Just to, uh, just to come back to the, uh, I suppose, the political fallout a little bit, um, uh, you know, it seems almost crass to think of the political side of things when this is such a um, really a, a moment in the nation to, to feel, I suppose, the, the deep sense of personal pain that so many Australians do feel. But, you know, the reality of this is that there is a political ramification and the, this week's essential poll shows that actually the political ramifications are starting to fall along gender lines, which, you know, you, you, you would hope wouldn't be the case. Um, but there is up to a 12-point gap opening between men and women on their opinions of, of Morrison and his handling of what's been happening over the last few weeks. And uh, I think uh, Van, you know, what Grace Tame had to say about Morrison's view that, you know, as a father, his sort of as a father quote, um, I think sums up how a lot of people feel, but particularly um, if I can uh, say how a lot of Australian women have felt about his handling of it. I'm going to play you um, the question that Grace Tame got at her address today and her response to it. Naveen Razik from SBS, thank you for your really engaging, powerful speech. I just want to go to the issue of rhetoric that we touched on with uh, Angus Houston. When the Prime Minister responded to these first set of allegations, he used the phrase, as a father, um, and he said he had to have a chat with his wife, Jenny, before he was able to you know, front the media and speak. What do you make of that and what do you make of the rhetoric and the way he's handled those allegations? It shouldn't take having children to have a conscience. And actually, on top of that, having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. I think that's pretty um, that's pretty powerful and, yeah. and pretty accurate and I think sums up how a lot of people felt um, and still do feel about what Morrison said. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, she's really quite impressive. Look, uh, I, you know this is this is a topic that we have discussed now for five five shows. Um, five episodes of this podcast and uh, if you are struggling with uh, issues around this uh, if you do need someone to talk to please do uh, jump on um, one of the support lines that are available uh, in your state um, you can get them on google they're all over social media at the moment as well lots of people putting stuff out there to make sure that you don't um, try and work your way through this stuff alone you know and i think it does need to be discussed that Scott Morrison mishandled this 
they clearly don't get it. This is a problem where men are the problem and women are the victims of the problem overwhelmingly. And it's men whose behaviour has to change, not women whose behaviour has to change. Let's be in no doubt about that. Uh, it's men's behaviour that needs to change. Van, I want to make sure you've got a final word on this topic before we move on. I just really look forward to the day where when we're not having a conversation about it isn't because we're pretending that it doesn't happen. You know, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Either we talk about it and it's incredibly painful or at present we don't talk about it and we pretend that it doesn't happen and that's just as painful. Like there is there's no silver lining here there's no you know there's no comfort or reassurance for people you we can't as a society go back and undo the things that have been done to people you know people who have survived sexual violence live with that survivorship until the end of their lives and sometimes those lives are cut short because that experience overwhelms them and that's understandable that's completely understandable you know, other people can process what has happened to them. And, you know, like I said, it's very unpredictable. Um, but there's no, we just keep talking about it and not feeling any better. And every time it's mishandled, it's grievous. Like it's a, it's a grievous mm. disrespect to that unbelievably common, outrageously common experience that people have. I really want to talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really yeah. just, I'm really on board with talking about anything else at this point. Well, we're going to have two pieces of good news this week because we've got two very heavy topics. Obviously, we've just covered one. The next one is also fairly heavy. Um, it, the Aged Care Royal Commission uh, report has been uh, tabled and made public. Uh, a $90 million Royal Commission uh, it covered two years. There was 10,500 submissions, 600 witnesses. One of the commissioners actually passed away during the, the actual process. He, he was diagnosed with cancer and um, died seven weeks afterwards. He, he worked most of that time. Um, and at the end of it, uh, the, the two remaining commissioners were actually split on a number of recommendations. Um, but there are some key things... I love how our dog is completely distressed about the aged care so situation upset. and I can hear him all the way from Wagga. He's so upset. Um, but there are four key things really that, that... That dog loves his grandma. Can I just say? Loves her. Loves her so much. Um, so four key things that, that have come out. Um, aged care needs to be rights-based. The system needs stronger governance. Um there needs to be an improvement in workplace conditions. And, we have and, to maybe have some staff ratios. What do you reckon? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. The ANMF, the HSU, the UWU. All the health been, unions have been saying for decades that we need ratios, nurse-to-patient nurse ratios in aged care. This has been said so many times. And now we've had the big commission. And guess what? Turns out we need nurse-to-patient ratios in aged care. Amazing. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, and, and we've seen in Victoria in the state side of the sector uh, where there are staff ratios, not just nurse to patient ratios, but other forms of staff as well, uh, that during COVID, 
the the incidence of COVID in the government run, the state government run sector was much, much lower than in the private sector. And in fact, the, the commission looked at that as well. Um, and, and really it is gonna cost more. Like that, that is something that, that everyone agrees on. There are question marks about um, how it should cost more, i.e. Um, giving more money to privatized providers. That's is- not gonna be a solution because that's no. always been the solution. You know, they, well, they traced the origins of this ridiculous, you know, completely insufficient aged care system to decisions that were made to encourage greater privatisation made during the Howard government. And yeah. like all of the Howard government's privatisation decisions, it's led to poorer, unequal and chaotic outcomes and throwing more and more and more and more money at privatised businesses, which is genuinely generally what happens in these situations, it doesn't actually fix the problem. It improves the margins and the bottom line of the operators, but it doesn't actually make the structural problem, which is the exploitation of old people in a capitalist paradigm that delivers profit. Like it further encourages that paradigm. It is totally insane that we are still pretending that privatisation is not the problem. Well, I mean, I'm not pretending that it's not the problem. Oh, I and, know that. I know you hate privatisation. <laughs> and, and interestingly... Now, I'm going to marry you. If you were in favour of privatisation, it'd be over, Rover. I think we both know that. Well, interestingly, you know, Oliver Yates, who people might remember uh, as an independent candidate at the last federal election, was is also, for most of his life outside of that, actually a merchant banker with Macquarie. He has publicly and loudly... Not called, exactly renowned as a benevolent institution, Macquarie, but continue. <laughs> no, well, bankers, you know, he's called for the nationalisation of the aged care system. And i got to say, when the merchant bankers are calling for the nationalisation of your industry, it, it really has uh, expired its social licence to operate. And, and that's, that's what this commission is effectively saying, is that, you know, privatised aged care... Uh, is not delivering, you know, 18% of residents have been assaulted, you know, um, that's, that's an incredibly high number. Oh, it's unbelievable. 18%, 18%. That is your mother. That is your grandmother. That is your beloved uncle. You know, that is your beloved cousin in a system where their safety cannot be guaranteed by the people who care for them. Like that is outrageous. And, and, the, and the, the numbers are really clear. And, the, and, you know, I'm going to use some of the numbers because it's quite telling. You know, the government-run aged care uh, topped 31 indicators. Like, they, they were the top on 31 indicators. The not-for-profit providers, who a lot of people, um, you know, use and, and think are quite good, they, they managed to top two, and the for-profit providers um, only managed to top one. And that was on the chronic use of opioids which when you think about it just means that the private providers don't want to give people expensive drugs. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that, that's a good thing. Sure. But there are thir- that means there are 33 indicators where the for-profit providers, that is people who are taking a clip, who are putting money in their pocket to provide aged care services. There are 33 indicators where they are not top. Now, if you're, if you're not top, what are you doing in the system? Why are we not just giving it to government to run? Because well, this doing- is the argument always made with privatisation is, oh, it'll be so customer focused. And, you know, the market will deliver what people really want and it'll be a much more efficient system. 
And let's not be ambiguous about here. When people argue for privatisation efficiencies, they're talking about an, an efficiency of directing capital that is your money, either in tax dollars or private contributions, like having to pay as a user for the service of aged care, to the owners. That is the only efficiency is your money gets to the capitalist class a lot faster. And I'm sorry to be, you know, a bit 70s and talk about the capitalist class, but, you know, this is this is where we are, friends. Privatisation does not work. It does not deliver on any of the things that it promises, apart from enormous profits to the owners. I, I did a video for the ACTU, and if you haven't seen my funny little ACTU videos, they're on YouTube and you can hunt them down. And it, the the stuff about privatisation, like I did an episode about privatisation and found some photos of the yachts and luxury cars owned by one of these private operators. And it doesn't matter if it's aged care or childcare or any kind of service that used to be run by government and then was, you know, sold off to these amazing, efficient operators. It is absolutely disgusting to think 18% of senior Australians, our elders, are victims of abuse in that system. Jesus Christ, 18%? How are we even tolerating this? If 18% of workplaces were thumping their workers every day, there's no way that we would abide it. If we had incidents of violence on that level in a school system, like parents would raise the system to the ground. 18% of aged care residents are experiencing violence and we're still defending a structural system that has allowed that to happen. Anybody, anybody who defends the privatisation of aged care has that violence on their conscience. It's outrageous. It is outrageous. And and part of the discussion seems to have the come dog to- can hear that I'm upset all this way. Can. And and part of the discussion seems to have boiled down to, oh, well, there's, there needs to be more money in the system and there's not enough profit in the system, which can I just touch on that for a moment? Because it is a $13 billion federal system, $13 billion federal system, and the margins for private providers are about 4.4%. Now, to put that into context, Myers margin is about 3.17. So if you're going into aged care as a private provider, you're getting a better margin than Maya. And of course, there's almost no risk because you know this is a growing industry. You know it's underwritten by government. You know there's government money. Essentially, the money you're getting is just a transfer from the taxpayer. And even when Morrison was giving his press conference to announce the report from the Royal Commission, keeping in mind he didn't actually release the report to the public until basically the moment he stood up at the press conference. And again, keep in mind, this is thousands of pages. There are 10 and a half thousand submissions. Oh, yeah, you can read that in one press conference. I mean, here you go, Catherine Murphy, that'll take you 10 minutes. Oh, I saw that press conference with Morrison and he was asked about it by a journalist. He was like, how are we supposed to ask you about questions if you're handing it to us now? And he was like, oh, well, I'll take questions on it at another time. Next. That was basically the attitude. And it was just like the contempt the contempt for transparency from this government, oh. actual contempt. I don't hold a hose, mate. It's not my responsibility. Oh, we'll talk about this in due course when the time is ripe. It is just constant from Morrison. And it's like, are you actually interested? You're, you're interested in being prime minister. That much is obvious. But the actual governing part seems to be a thing that you're not that committed to. Actually solving these problems, amazingly, Scott Morrison, is your job. That is and- your job. And the, and the press conference really was just to, to say that they're going to pour another $480 million 
into the current system, there was no, uh, really no acknowledgement of the recommendations or which ones he will be accepting. He was asked about that numerous times and said they'd have more to say. Um, now, to put $480 million into the system, you know, it sounds good, but let's be really clear, the rebuilding of the War Memorial is costing $500 million. So, you know, the Morrison government's prepared to valorise uh, those Australians who sacrificed their lives and didn't get to become elders um, more than they are prepared to deal with the 18% of our elders who are being assaulted in their care homes. Uh, but more, more to the point, you know, this money is not tied to any outcomes. There is nothing that says uh, these, this money will be put into staff or care or minutes of or care. food. Everybody's seen the photographs oh, of the food. $6 that... a day food budgets. You know, this is, this is something that the commission was really clear about is that there needs to be standards. There needs to be a whole new act on aged care. So a whole new um, government uh, law. Uh, and really Morrison didn't address any of that um, other than to pour more money into a system, which frankly, everybody knows is broken. Um, so and now we know how broken it is and we have the detail of how broken it is. So we can't just go around just, you know, knowing that it's broken. We can actually argue the detail of its brokenness. And yet Scott Morrison lobs a 10 and a half thousand word report at a pool of journalists and says, we can talk about this later. And it's like, why are you here? Yeah. It, it, it's shocking. It's shocking. But you know, look, the, the good news is the report is there. There's there's going to be more discussion on this topic. It, it is going to be pushed really, really hard. Um, you know, it's going to be, I think, one of the one of the top issues for people because we are an aging, we are an aging country, uh, we are an aging population. And, you know, we can't continue to allow this to be swept on the rug. There's been lots and lots of inquiries and reports. Well, now we've got a Royal Commission. Now there are extensive recommendations. And look, it's good to have debate about the recommendations. Don't get me wrong. You know, um, one commissioner wants a separate permanent independent commission. One commissioner wants it to be really clearly recognised as a government responsibility and a government department. Um, you know, there should be debate around that. Um, but it has to lead to outcomes and you know, I don't think the Australian people are going to allow this situation to continue regardless of Morrison's spinning. Should we talk about some good news? Oh, please, Jesus. So, look, you know, there's, we've got two pieces of good news, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to put one on the table, um, and that is that there are Nazis going on the terrorist watch list. So This is such good news. Isn't this great news? Because And know, I want to put this in context for our listeners. Um, Benjamin is well aware of the fact that I get harassed by Nazis all the time. In fact, there was a lovely shout-out calling for my death in neo-Nazi internet publication, The Daily Stormer, um, that, you know, was received in our household with a, you know, quite a bit of um, reticence, actually, not wanting to die and certainly not wanting to be killed by neo-Nazis. So I can hear the joy in Ben's voice that finally people have decided that maybe organisations and movements that issue public death threats to people should be on terrorist watch lists. Well, because the reality of this is that for a long time uh, we saw in the West conservative governments try and suggest, and Donald Trump is a classic for this, that that 
you know, the left are the terrorists and anti-fascists are the fascists. Mm. Um, while, I think there's a dead giveaway in the name that that's not true. Yeah, and, and what we were also seeing at the same time was law enforcement, intelligence communities, you know, saying actually the problem here is the far right. The problem here is the rise of neo-Nazism and the rise of fascism in many parts of the country as violent extremists. And we've seen them commit really significant acts of violence where many people have been killed, um, gun violence, explosions, um, all sorts of really awful, horrible acts of violence. Uh, and of course, you know, there's been a reticence uh, in some conservative circles to put these groups on terrorist watch lists. Um, and I have to say, uh, you know, the, the Morrison government uh, has finally, after a year of Christina Keneally calling for them to do it, has finally put uh, a UK Nazi group that I won't actually name here because I don't want to give them the, the airtime, but has put this group and its affiliates and allies here in Australia on a terrorist watch list. Um, so, you know, and I have to, and I have to say James Patterson, the Liberal Senator James Patterson, who I disagree with on many, many things, uh, superannuation, workers' rights, wages, the privatisation of aged care. like we've The just right of the ABC to exist. Basically, right. anything social and civil that we like, he does or economic. not. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, he is now chair of the Parliamentary Committee um, on Intelligence and Security, uh, probably given that the wrong name, but that's essentially what it does. Uh, and he has said that this is a big focus for his work uh, to put right-wing terrorist groups on the watch list and to make sure that Nazis are not operating in Australia. So, you know, that is That's good great. news. That's great. That is genuinely great. good news. And thank you, Senator Patterson, for taking this seriously. And thank you for committing to taking action on this issue. Unqualified support in the busting neo-Nazis department from me. It's good to know we can all get together on the busting neo-Nazis, isn't it? Like, you know, there was a time there where I wasn't sure we would all get together on that, but it's good to see that we are all getting together on the let's bust the Nazis. Yeah, there's a great German saying um, that I don't know in the original German, but it, the saying goes, if you have one Nazi at dinner with 10 people, you have 11 Nazis. Yeah. And you've got to be proactive. Like there's no space for Nazis anywhere uh, they should all be on watch lists. Absolutely. So, Van, what's your good news? Oh, so my good news is the University of San Francisco, um, in collaboration with two other environmental economic research organisations in the United States, has has crunched the numbers and has got an intersectional economic and infrastructure model uh, where they have said they can get the United States to carbon neutrality by 2050 for the cost of $1 per person per day, which is amazing. And they've done a number of different models around energy use in the United States and some models cost more, some models cost less. And essentially what they've identified is that there is a pathway for the United States to reach carbon neutrality without having to uh, mothball any infrastructure before its expiry date, like they've factored in right. um, the closure of coal-fired power stations and various gas operations and fossil fuel industries. And they've said we can actually still reach neutrality just based on the um, predicted lifespan of this infrastructure as long as we sub it out with um, 
wind and solar and make that part of and make that the dominant form of energy production they've looked at things like refer uh, um, reforming how americans heat their homes like their furnace system and replacing that with heat pumps um phasing out uh petrol powered cars for electric not saying you have to give up your petrol powered car but at the end of the expected life cycle of that car to replace with an electric vehicle and it's an extraordinary piece of research and really hopeful going we have a plan we've costed it out you know it's going to mean lifestyle change and it's going to mean some choices like do we want to give more land to wind and solar because that will be cheaper or less land and that will be more expensive but there are options within that system and the idea that you know, that there's actually some serious work that's gone into the planning, the logistics and the economics of a transition to carbon neutrality in America is amazing. All we need now is for Americans to find the political will. And I've written about how Joe Biden's been very explicit about about his um, commitment. He says, when I hear climate change, I think jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, with that kind of leadership, there's a potential for them to actually follow that path. And, you know, the potential is there for Australia as well. If we know that the United States is doing the thinking about those kind of transitions, there's an opportunity for us as a country that has research infrastructure and, you know, brilliant scientists and engineers and, you know, a highly literate, highly educated community to be leading innovation in uh, electricity generation and other forms of infrastructure. There's an opportunity for us to, you know, seize the initiative and be market leaders when it comes to, you know, building the infrastructure of transition. You know, I'm not necessarily sure that Scott Morrison's up for that because it would require, you know, governing, which we all know is not a thing he likes to do. But there is just so much opportunity um, and that was my really hopeful news for the day. I think I was searching about somewhat desperately for it. Look, a dollar a day, I mean, that's it just, you know, it, it draws to mind, you know, that's that's the, basically the cost of a cup of 7-Eleven coffee a day. Um, you know, I think I think we can all find a dollar a day to make sure there's a planet for us to stand on. And if we tax people based on their capacity to pay tax, oh, yes. you know, like we could tax some billionaires. Amazing. In fact, there are a couple of billionaires who'd probably be able to cover the lot. So... I mean, we're not billionaires, Van, but I have to, you know, I'm going out on a limb here to say this, and and we haven't consulted about this, I know, but I would be prepared to pay two dollars a day. I, I know, you know, I know, baby, I'm I'm there. I'd I'd be prepared. Budget, I'd, you know, we all know I'm in the arts, and I'd pay two dollars a day. I would literally, I would, I would give up my daily long black for oh. the world to exist. I would do that. I'm saying that publicly now. There you go. There you go, folks. You've heard it here first on the week on Wednesday. Uh, you know, a dollar a day to save the planet that we stand on and the air that we breathe. I love breathing. Do you love breathing? Yeah, I do. I do. You know, it's cheaper than a Netflix subscription, you know, like, come on. Um, And, uh, you know, now Netflix is going to put saving the planet as one of its competitors. All right. That's the week on Wednesday. Amazing. Another big thank you to Nathan, who has sat by and just 
amazingly supervised this whole thing and got me set up in Bogger. It is totally incredible what he's done. Thank you so much, Nathan. And thank you everyone for listening. Please do remember to share the episode. Do talk to your friends about it. There's a lot of heavy stuff in this episode, I know. Uh, We will, of course, have the weekend wrap again on Sunday where I will break down very quickly the the stories from the back end of the week. Uh, And yeah, go on social media, go on Facebook, go on Twitter, go on um, Instagram, whatever whatever you're poisoned, share, talk, get these issues out there. Uh, We really, really appreciate everyone who has been in contact with us uh, and who is sharing story ideas as well. Uh, We appreciate that we can't get to everybody's story ideas. uh, And for those of you who sent us through some uh, on today, uh, (laughs) we we appreciate those uh, and we'll see if we can get to those sometime in the future. That is the week on Wednesday. Love you, Vanny. I love you too, baby. Bye. Bye. Nathan, Nathan, help me. Do I hit pause or stop?